For Arizona Public Media, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, how Borderlands Theater is sharing the idea of sanctuary. Meet two artists participating in a week-long series exploring female migration in art, politics, and culture. The Pima County Master Gardener Program celebrates 35 years. And a weekend art show by young people dealing with grief. Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. The 1980s were a time of extreme brutality in much of Central America. In El Salvador, a United Nations report estimated that between 1980 and 1992, more than 75,000 people were killed by death squads, and that number only includes the bodies that were found. Thousands more disappeared and were not accounted for. Central Americans running from death squads and seeking asylum in the United States are what gave birth to the sanctuary movement, which began here in Tucson in 1982. Nancy Montoya shares a conversation with a husband and wife who have brought back a page from Tucson's history with the play Sanctuary. Lord, prepare me to be a sanctuary. It started with just one church here in Tucson, Southside Presbyterian. Within two years, more than 500 churches from around the country declared that they too would join the church and open their doors to provide sanctuary to Central Americans fleeing the brutal death squads. Sanctuary for... Almost 40 years later, Sanctuary, the play, opened in Tucson to sold-out audiences. He looked me in the eye and said, if you continue, you'll be indicted. Now, the play tells the story of the beginning of the sanctuary movement in Tucson in the 1980s, and those who would defy the federal government and risk prosecution and jail to protect immigrants. It's not like you can hold a conference and say you've been smuggling people. But we could claim sanctuary. I don't like the idea of going public. Mark Benete is the director of Borderlands Theater. We could lose everything. Milta Ortiz, his wife, also works at Borderlands Theater, and she wrote the play. It was people sacrificing their freedom for people that they didn't know that did not look like them. And the humanity of that, the compassion of that is amazing to me, and I wanted to share that story. We have to see what the legal repercussions are. Ortiz is Salvadorian-American. In the 1980s, she came to the U.S. when she was just eight years old. But once here, her parents would not talk about those brutal years back in El Salvador. As a playwright, I found out about the sanctuary movement when I was interviewing Lupe Castillo, a historian in town, and she mentioned the sanctuary movement. I did not know about it, and she said, you're Salvadorian, aren't you? And so she told me a little bit about it, and ever since then, that was three or four years ago, I... I, I, it was in the back of my mind as I need to share this story because people work together uh, for a cause. As we have experienced 
In the 1980s, that cause would become an international movement. It happened when Tucson immigration attorneys learned of secret U.S. government deportations of Salvadorians that often resulted in death for those sent back. And then um, you have the sanctuary movement in the 1980s. Many of those people are now in their 70s and 80s and were the inspiration for Pinate and his wife to make the play. The real names of the movement's founders are not used in the play, but Pinate says their strength of character is written into every scene. Are you talking about going public? Why not? It's working fine now. Except they want to... They are elders, they're, they're warriors, they're enlightened souls. You know, they, they, they really shift the energy of a room when they walk in. The play is really about the relationships of the people in the movement. Going public hasn't worked that great in the past. We have to try. These people came from, like, lived in Tucson, and they were they were forged. Their their political uh, maturity uh, happened here because of the situation they were in. The couple knows that their play, Sanctuary, is controversial. The original Sanctuary movement was as well. But Ortiz says those she talked with who lived through the 1980s movement tell her it feels even worse now that today there is a vitriol that seems more intense. To be a sanctuary, pure you have to stand up to a bigger, a bigger bully, I think. And so the people doing the work are really courageous and they're doing as much as they can. Um, and so that's, to me, that is still the same is people are putting their all and, and their full heart into helping folks get to safety. For Arizona Spotlight, I'm Nancy Montoya. The next plans for the play are to take it on the road to other sanctuary cities in the Southwest. The creators are also providing scripts to sanctuary churches to do live readings with their congregations. Women have crossed and will continue to cross borders and barriers every single day. Taking time to reflect on the progress and to look to the demands of the present and future are the driving forces behind the Binational Encuentro, a week-long series of free events including art, workshops, and panel discussions. Joining me to talk about some of the aspects of female migration that the Encuentro will explore are contributing artists Sarah Gonzalez and Teray Fowler-Chapman. When we were writing, thinking about women and migration and gender in and of itself, it's such a vast thing to consider with many, many definitions and a multitude of experiences. And the poets that I'm working with in our piece fall along the gender spectrum in different ways. And so part of our work was to think about that. How can we expand through our work what people might stereotypically think of when they hear female migrations? I think like when I think of female migrations, I think of like the idea of like movement and not just like in the idea of moving um, like place to place, but also like the movement within an identity, um, specifically like gender identity. Can you share with us any questions that you began to ask yourself as you uh, began to approach presenting art for this uh, event? The first question that I asked myself, especially like um, 
with, I guess, like where I'm personally at um, is like, should I be there? And um, like with looking at like the advertisement and stuff, like questioning, like, well, what does that mean for me? But then at the same time, also claiming um, like this long period of time where I did identify strictly as female um, and understanding that that's also not necessarily the entire conversation, but there is a fragment or a particle in the conversation for that space, too. Like Tere was saying, there are so many ways in which we migrate across thoughts and identities. I think for me, it's about migrating around, I guess, ideas and, and how we have to deal with them, because these inequities have been around for a very long time. Um, but the ways in which we heal and find ways of healing and then deal with them look very different. So I think for this one, it's another form of migrating across healing spaces, because sometimes we get shifted over into being defensive and having to protect ourselves. It's hard to make space for healing, but the process to me is almost as important, if not more important than the actual performance. And so being in that process of creating space to write with five other folks about these topics has been very healing for us. And Tere, we are in a tumultuous period for identity, politics, gender, race. Mm. Have you had time to sit down and take stock of where we are now that's different than where we were even last year at this time? I don't think that people of color are awarded the time to take stock. Um, this is not new. Like with migration, it's, um, you know, when someone, I don't think that necessarily like we have to identify with this, like the way that we all migrate. But like when women tell you a story, you know, it's about moving that story forward and moving that truth and know now that you know that truth, then how do you act beyond that point? You know, or if someone shares something about crossing a border, it's about moving that truth and acting um, from that knowledge and moving forward. And I don't think that you necessarily have to experience that to be able to move that and hold space for that. People who think that when you use a phrase like holding space, mm -hmm. when they say that's not important, I would ask them to reconsider that because it's the beginning of everything else. Without creating space, where does one begin? Uh, we could talk for years just even about what space means and, and who owns it and who gets to have it and the luxury of it. But I like to think of holding space as, as a way to say uh, we have to dream it before it can exist. And so it becomes critical for us to create those spaces in which folks can come together. For me, really liking to work in collaboration and often working with folks who may not consider themselves poets or uh, not get to have the label of artist as I felt that way before as well. And so there's lots of writers, especially um, Octavia Butler, which people study her works a lot because it's science fiction and uh, they were a black queer woman to talk about. We have to be able to dream it up before it will be in existence. So I think that's what I think of about the importance of holding space. Tere, in your role leading a workshop and also being on a panel, and Sarah being on a panel and presenting some art, did you set goals for yourself and what you wanted to accomplish personally as part of the Binational Encuentro? I think one of the biggest goals, um, especially with facilitating the workshop, is I want um, a moment for like people to relax, even if it's just for a second, um, and write. Um, and so if I can get everyone in the room to write. Um, from like a place of like honesty or like a place of like wherever they feel they need to in their body to get free, then I feel like I've reached my goal um, for that. So that's pretty much what I've been focused on. I'm really excited about the workshop. I think it's going to be a lot of fun. And Sarah, what about goals for yourself? I think the goal that I have more often than not these days is to work in collaboration. I think something like this 
uh, topic is hard to do as one person, but I just feel very comfortable working with other folks. And so it's former students of mine, colleagues of mine um, that come together and see what happens when all of our minds are in there together. And um, I kept adding people. And so the organizers got a little nervous and they're like, you know, you just have this amount of time. And I'm like, I can work some magic here. It's going to it's going to be okay. (laughs) And it did, you know, everything that we wrote, um, we actually tossed out in a way uh, and then came together and wrote something else. So all of it was a necessary process and our voices uh, sometimes in unison at sometimes going back and forth and supporting each other ultimately. So that was my goal and I felt really excited to be part of a, a collaborative performance. What impact do you think that this might have uh, on the conversation about female migrations and where we are right now in Southern Arizona? There's going to be a little mini explosion in the Southwest when all the voices are heard. I predict things will tumble and shift in physical and mental and emotional spaces, and people will feel a sense of having a stake in it. And I do think there will be some healing there as well. That's my prediction. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Um, Yeah, I think that there's going to be magic in the Southwest this week for sure. And the impact that it has. I mean, I think anytime you stop a city or stop a moment and really, really think about like, are we putting like female voices first? Um, When in my opinion, like that's the beginning of everything um, that, you know, like that that's power. Um, And so I think it'll have an impact and hopefully inspire more of these type of projects to kind of show up. My guests were Teray Fowler-Chapman and Sarah Gonzalez. They're among dozens of artists and speakers participating in the Binational Encuentro, focused on female migration. Free events include workshops, panels, and performances, and they're happening now through October 19th. We have a link to the complete schedule on the Arizona Spotlight page at azpm.org. Since the 1980s, master gardeners in Pima County have been helping the community by answering questions about native plants, common garden diseases, and how to tell the good insects from the bad ones. But where did the title Master Gardener come from? Here's Tony Paniagua with the coordinator and the senior office specialist for the Pima County Master Gardener Program to talk about the celebration later this month, which recognizes 35 years of helping Southern Arizona grow. Eric Johnson and Francine Correll, thank you very much for joining us. Eric, I think a lot of people have heard of the Master Gardener Program or Master Gardeners. What is it basically? Uh, Master Gardeners, uh, in a nutshell, are volunteer community educators. We take information, research-based information in horticulture from the University of Arizona and other institutions and deliver it and teach it to the public in a variety of different ways. And what are some of the topics that are covered by Master Gardeners? Um, well, we, we really cover um, practically everything under the sun from uh, aquaponics to roses uh, to uh, developing certification for uh, wildlife habitat in your backyard to uh, propagating your own plants at home, um, container gardening, uh, boy, the list goes on and on. Francine, so how did you discover this organization? I know you've been there 
for 34 out of the past yes, 35 years. That's right. Well, I just applied for university and I didn't know nothing about uh, horticulture or anything like that, but I learned a lot over the years. So what is it like? What is your role there at the Cooperative Extension? Well, um, every time the volunteer come in the office, they always need something. So I just provide anything they ask to make their life easier. At one point, you became a master gardener. Can you tell us about that experience, Well, please? yes. Uh, I was on the Georgeburg Bank in 1994, and he said, well, you're going to have to take the class. <laughs> so I said, okay, I'll find some times. And so yeah, I did, and um, it took me about mm, 10 weeks, I think, every morning I was taking the class, and then, then I became a master gardener. And what do you think yeah. of that? Oh, it's, it's very – I learned a lot, really. It was really – uh, intensive, but I learned a lot about this horticulture and the roses and this and plant identification, things like that. So we were speaking ahead of this interview, and you are—you don't come from a biological horticultural no. background. You studied yeah. something else, but then you became yeah. a master gardener. Yeah, yeah. You know, um, I, my background's in visual arts. I've been a musician in town. Um, but I have always, I think one of the things I inherited from my family was a real deep interest in horticulture and plants. And, uh, my dad has a real green thumb. My, my grandparents were immigrants from Europe. Um, and my grandfather was a real naturalist and, and farmer, and that's how the family survived, uh, for the, the first couple of years. And, and when they, when they made the journey over and, um, really got me inspired to, to continue that kind of journey. And so the Master Gardeners seem to be a real good fit. And what have you liked about it, Francine, about not only becoming a Master Gardener yourself, but being part of the central nervous system for this organization well, here in Pima County? Well, it, it's the volunteer themselves. They're great people. I mean, they work hard and they're all from different backgrounds. A lot of them are retired. And it, many times I have a chat with them and just love it. I mean, they're all different, and they're just, uh, it's amazing how good people they are. I mean, we're lucky to have these volunteers. Very lucky, yes. So on Saturday, October 27th, we're going to have demonstration and workshops throughout the gardens in each of the 14 different themed gardens within our demonstration garden. We're going to have a small ceremony at 10 o'clock featuring um, Associate Dean and Director Jeff Silvertooth is going to give a keynote. And uh, there's going to be musicians, food trucks. There's going to be a, a scavenger hunt, a family-friendly event, um, free to the public. So please come down and join us in celebrating this birthday for us. Okay. Anything mm -hmm. else you would like to say, Francine, about your 34 years as well, part of this organization? Well, I'm, I'm still going, so <laughs> I'm not ready to go yet. <laughs> so I still enjoy it. And you, Eric, moving forward? You know, I think uh, it has really been an honor to be involved in the program. And honestly, I think we have never been in a better position than we are today. Thank you very much, Eric Johnson and Francine Carell, for being here. And good luck to you. Each of Arizona's 15 counties has a Master Gardener program run by the University of Arizona's Cooperative Extension. The 35th anniversary celebration for the Pima County Group starts at 9 a.m. on Saturday, October 27th at the Demonstration Garden on Campbell Avenue in Tucson. The nonprofit Tu Nidito has created a safe place for children and young adults to heal from grief and trauma for more than two decades. 
This weekend, the public is invited to view the group's first art show, called A Colorful Journey. It contains works by children and young people whose lives have been touched by difficult events, including the loss of loved ones or diagnoses of serious illnesses. I met with Amanda Marks, who came to Tunedito to continue a career in social work that included working with children in pediatric oncology. She showed me a few of the more than 200 paintings that will be on display. So at Tunedito, we work with children ages three and a half to 29. So you'll see pieces of artwork from all those different age ranges. Amazing. And right now we're looking at a piece of art by a young girl, five years old. Her brother died, and here's a piece of art she produced that's kind of ironically called Happy. Can you describe it for our listeners? What struck me about this piece is, like you said, the title is called Happy, yet we're looking at a girl on the piece of canvas that has a sad face with brown hair and bright colors on her shirt. But for some reason, this child chose to title her piece of artwork as Happy. It's almost a stick figure, but there's there's also depth and detail to the body. It's obviously something that she spent a lot of time thinking about. Mm-hmm. And uh, the minimalism on the limbs is almost a statement, almost part of the design in terms of drawing your eye towards the face of the figure. Mm-hmm. And as you say, there's a big frowny face there. Their question when they were in group was just, if you could show somebody what grief looks like, in your life, what would you show them? And they were given some time to think about it. And so there were no limits. It wasn't, you have to draw a person, you have to draw your special person, you have to paint a landscape. It was just, this is what this child said, I wanna draw this person with a sad face. And this could almost maybe be kind of like an alter ego for the little girl, Mm -hmm. a vision of what she feels like inside or how she views herself. It'll depend on how you want to look at the painting. Is this a self-portrait of what she feels on the inside but doesn't project that out for others to see? And it comes out on paper now when she's given that time to process and put paintbrush to paper. Um, You just don't know. And especially with this age group, it's just amazing to see what this young of an age group has produced. I think her brushwork is really expressive. Our next age group includes a painting here by an 11-year-old girl whose mother died because of an accident. And the painting is called Hidden Face. It's acrylic oil paint, but it's been manipulated. She's used sponges to do the background. But her attention to form and figure on the face of her subject is very detailed and very mature, I would say. I just think there's so many layers in this piece of artwork. So the background is a bunch of colors just muddled together with sponge work um, to really put the face of the picture in the foreground of the artwork and to make it what you're drawn to when you first look at it. Um, The title is called Hidden Face, and it's just interesting because there's nothing hiding in her face. The face is what you see, but it's got like a patch of red on her cheek, so you don't know what that's about. If it's a wound, if it's a scar, but that's also the lip color, and one eye is open and one eye is closed. So I just think there's so many messages being sent in this piece of artwork. Amanda, there's so much beautiful artwork here. It's so hard to, to focus on a piece, but one that really calls out to me is this one from an artist who is 18 years old. Um, her brother has been diagnosed with leukemia, and she's produced a painting called Depression with Hope. And there are dark mountains in the foreground and a multicolored blue sky in the background and just the merest hint of light coming up over those mountains. 
I feel like this is a really deeply thoughtful work. What would you want to say about Depression with Hope? The color choice alone, just how it blends in the darkness, then all of a sudden, like you said, it kind of brings in that little bit of light peeking through. Um, I think the title is powerful in and of itself, Depression with Hope. Um, and like you said, done by an 18-year-old girl whose brother is currently going through treatment for leukemia and just what she must feel like as the sibling going through this process alongside her brother. So from our older age group, we have a woman who's 24. Her brother died of a fatal asthma attack, and anyone living with asthma, like myself, feels the peril in that. Um, but tell us what she did in terms of using text in her painting. What's really powerful about this piece of work is the title combined with the text on the artwork. So the title is Grief Sometimes Makes You Lose People Who Aren't Dead. And in the picture, you see black and gold ink blotting effect with it'll be okay. I'm sorry for your loss. What's wrong with you? Bye. So she's talking about all the people that abandoned her in her grief, that left, that couldn't handle it, felt awkward around her. And so she lost her friends. Some of her friends weren't as supportive as they thought they were being. And I think that this piece of artwork is really powerful about the stigma of grief. We don't know what to say. And so sometimes we can say the wrong thing or not be helpful when we're trying to be helpful. Another phrase that she wrote down here is, this is too much for me to deal with. I'm tired of this. I think this is a good reminder of just how resilient kids are um, and how sometimes it's the adult's own anxiety or the adults get in the way of the process and really giving the kids this freedom and not having limits on them and what they could put down on paper and just seeing. I mean, the artwork that you'll see over 220 pieces is just going to be so fulfilling and it's just been a reminder for me of just keeping things in perspective and reminding myself to just be there for kids when they need it most but know that they have the power to heal within themselves. Our vision is that no child grieves alone and we know that it truly does take a village to raise healthy strong resilient children in our community and all of our services are provided at no cost to families and children that come to Trinity Doe, and we really could not do what we do without community partners and donors and sponsors like the sponsors who are helping us put on this event. Thanks to Amanda Marks, Community Impact Director at Tu Nidito, for sharing some of the art with me. A Colorful Journey, an artistic expression of grief, is on display at 260 East Congress Street between 5th and 6th Avenues on Saturday and Sunday, October 13th and 14th. Admission is free. We have a link where you can see the paintings we talked about and get more information on the Arizona Spotlight page at azpm.org. Thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight. You can find our podcasts on iTunes and through the phone app NPR One. This show originates from the AZPM radio studios. AZPM's news director is Andrea Kelly. The music is by Calexico. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. I'm producer and host Mark McLemore. Arizona Public Media's original programming is made possible in part by the Community Service Grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.